I've said it many times before, but as hunters, we have to carry the role of conservationists just as much as we do outdoorsmen and just as much as we do the title of a hunter. So in order for us to do that, we have to really have an internal appreciation for wildlife as a whole, not just wildlife that we maybe hunt, not just game species, but also all species of wildlife. Because at the end of the day, all of these species, they, they interact together and they and they all play a, in a very important role in creating this place that we call the great outdoors. So this is why I wanted to have Laura Burford on today. She is a wildlife biologist with the Kentucky State Fish and Wildlife Agency. And she is also in a leadership role with the Kentucky Wild Program. So the Kentucky Wild Program is a brand new initiative that the Kentucky Fish and Wildlife Program is using as a way to partner with the citizens of Kentucky and to partner with people from all across the country, as you'll hear in our conversation. It's a great initiative going on right now to help promote the conservation of wildlife as a whole. So thank you guys for listening today and thank you guys for choosing the Rice Elite Podcast. I appreciate all the support that we've gotten so far and I appreciate everything that you guys have done as far as supporting the show. If this is your first time, then the Rice Elite Podcast is a it's a show for people who love God, freedom, and the great outdoors. So my goal of this show is to help share the stories of people who are in the outdoor industry and people who are making a difference in the outdoor industry and who just simply love to get outside and who want to share their stories on how their experiences outside and experiences hunting, whether experiences in the great outdoors have made them better spouses have made them better fathers and has improved their relationship with God. And it's been a really incredible experience. I've been able to talk to people like Jack Carr, Jeff Danker, uh, Dr. Carl Miller, Kip Adams with the QDMA. I've been able to talk to some incredible people and it's absolutely outstanding that I've been able to have these experiences with people from all across the country who are in the limelight of the outdoor industry. And it's been very refreshing as an outdoorsman to be able to share these experiences with people from all across the country. So be sure to subscribe today if you haven't already. So I've got some pretty awesome episodes that I'm excited to share with you guys in the near future, including this one. So make sure that you click that subscribe button. That way you don't miss out on any of the future episodes of the Rise Kill Elite podcast. It's also very important for us to get as many positive reviews and ratings as possible for the purpose of being able to spread the message of the show. So go ahead and leave us a review, leave us a rating if you find any value from today's episode, because again, those are going to go a long way with being able to help promote the message of the Rise Kill Elite podcast and be able to get that out there so that more people are going to be able to listen to it. So thank you guys again for all the support that we've gotten. So again, I've got Laura Burford on today. She's a wildlife biologist with the Kentucky State Fish and Wildlife Agency. We really break down why it's important for hunters to be able to consider and hunters and outdoorsmen to consider the entirety of wildlife populations. So the Kentucky Wild Program is a program that is designed to help with the conservation efforts of non-hunting species. So typically I have people from the hunting industry on this show and I took a little bit of a different approach to this episode as because I wanted to be able to share the importance of why we as hunters should consider the entire wildlife population and not just the small percentage of the game species that we may think of whenever we say wildlife conservation. So this was a really good conversation. I really enjoyed being able to talk with Laura. We get into the specifics of the Kentucky Wild Program, you know, what kind of projects are they working on right now? why it's important for those projects to be in place, where the where the funding comes from for wildlife conservation. It was a great opportunity for me to learn 
quite a bit. There was a lot of things that I didn't know prior to this conversation. And it was a great opportunity for me to be able to learn. I think you guys are going to find that same value as well. So thank you guys for choosing to listen today. And without further ado, I'm going to go ahead and get this episode started. Again, this is the Rise Kill Elite Podcast with me, your host, Tyler Pruitt. Enjoy the show. Thank you for being on tonight. I appreciate it. We had a little bit of issues there, but, you know, we'll, we'll work through it. That's all right. So, Laura, so uh, what is your position with the Kentucky Wild? Okay, well, I'm a wildlife biologist, and I've actually worked for Kentucky Fish and Wildlife since 1994, so quite a while. Um, my background is in vulnerable species, and I've also uh, worked quite a bit in conservation education. So the Kentucky Wild Program is really a perfect fit for my background and also my interests. And since I've been sort of a career employee, I've, it's really worth saying, I since I started with the agency, I have really been hoping for a program like this for a long time. So it's, it's really exciting to be a part of it. So as the wildlife biologist, I mean, are, are you in a lead role with Kentucky Wild specifically, or are you working with, uh, you know, with the entire Kentucky State Department of Fish and Wildlife? I mean, how does that look for you? Yeah. Well, it's funny, you know, within an agency, sometimes our titles don't mean anything to anybody else <laughs> right. in our agency, yeah. but I'm, I'm, I'm technically a wildlife program coordinator. And because Kentucky Wild is an agency initiative, we have a team of people involved with it, but I'm like the biologist on the team. So we also have some folks from um, our marketing division that help, you know, build the framework and, and talk about some of the direction and the promotion for the program. But it's my role to really handle a lot of the wildlife life experiences that we do and the biological content of what we put out through the program. That sounds like a really fun job. It really does. It is a fun job. It yeah, is absolutely. actually a dream job for me. So yeah, it's, it's a great, it's a great time trying to be here. So it's interesting that you mentioned uh, conservation education too. I'm, I'm a teacher full time. And uh, so the idea of conservation education and being able to teach students, you know, in schools, the importance of wildlife conservation and, you know, really introducing a lot of kids who don't necessarily have the opportunities to be able to get outside and enjoy wildlife and that kind of thing. Being able to bring that to them is a, is a really incredible thing that our state agency does. Oh, it really is. I mean, when um, I was working specifically in our information and education division, I would go to national conferences and um, the other states would just look at me with this jaw dropping and saying, what do you mean you have educators that get to go into schools? What do you mean that your your agency operates three conservation camps? Are you serious? <laughs> you know, and, and I just got to smile and say, yeah, you know, our agency really has this right and we've done this since the 50s. So it's a lot to be proud of. Kentucky really has a lot to be proud of in conservation education. Yeah, it really does. And just the conservation education, just the whole department in general i'm always proud to uh, on this show I've, I've been able to talk with people from all over the country and you know i always like to mention that i'm from kentucky and you know like to brag on how the fish and wildlife state agency is actually able to manage wildlife and you know present us with so many opportunities from a hunting standpoint with so many opportunities and just wildlife in general i feel like the we have one of the best from the little bit that i've seen comparatively across the country Kentucky has one of the best wildlife management agencies, state agencies around. I mean, I really feel like we do. 
yeah, I'm definitely proud to work here. <laughs> Absolutely. So what exactly is Kentucky Wild? I mean, what what does the program entail and when, when was it founded? Okay, sure. Um, well, Kentucky Wild, think of it about think of it as a conservation partnership program. It's it's designed for people that love wildlife, um, especially some of the wildlife folks might not think about, like songbirds, birds of prey, frogs, salamanders, bats, basically the, the other species that, that we don't hunt or fish. And Kentucky Wild is a membership program, and what it does, it allows people to partner with us and contribute to the work that our biologists are doing for some of the most imperiled species that we have out there. And all the membership monies that come in allow us to do habitat improvement projects, um, to purchase field gear, and, and to purchase equipment. And you know, I mentioned it's a new program. It's just a little over a year old, and it was unveiled in June of 2018. And since then, we have had such a tremendous response. I mean, I can't even tell you. We've we've welcomed members not only from all over Kentucky. We have members from 30 other states and the Virgin Islands. So I, I don't know that any of us saw that coming, but it's exciting. <laughs> what do you think is the motivator behind that, behind the you know other people from other states wanting to join in with it? You know, I don't know. All of us kind of have our speculations. We're, we're going to do a member survey here at the end of this year because we, we really want to hear what our members have thought in the first year and, and ask those kinds of questions. But I think that probably some of it is people that are coming from other states to Kentucky to hunt, and they learn about the program and like it. Um, you know, it might be people that are absentee landowners, you know, maybe maybe they live somewhere else that are from Kentucky, or maybe they um, maybe they just hear about it from another state, and they, they really like that, that all of the money is going directly to wildlife conservation. Whatever the reason, we're thrilled to have these members. It's, it's pretty cool. Yeah, it's really great that, you know, there's there's people from other states. I mean, that 30, that's, that's quite a bit. That's really yeah. impressive that, you know, there's people that value wildlife enough and value Kentucky wildlife enough to actually want to invest them their resources into into Kentucky's wildlife. I mean, that's that's pretty yeah. impressive. That's great. Exciting times. <laughs> so, are you familiar with uh, any other any other states that have something similar to this? I mean, is Kentucky pretty unique in this aspect, or are there other states that that have you know very similar programs? Um, you know, I think. Wildlife conservation is done a little bit differently in different states. There are some right. um, there are some states that have like a sales tax in their state, and all of that money kind of dumps into a fund that is specifically used for their uh, species that aren't hunted or fished. Um, some states kind of have friends groups and more nonprofit type structures. But to my knowledge, this is this is pretty neat. <laughs> I mean, this is a little bit different. We've had other states call us and ask about it. I think there's other states kind of looking from a distance and waiting to see how this does. But to say we're off to a, a great start, in my opinion anyway, is an understatement. I feel like we're exceeding expectations and just getting a lot of positive feedback from our members. So we're kind of excited to see where this goes. Yeah, that was a big reason why I wanted to have you on today to really discuss this was just because I just think it's so incredible that, you know, of course hunters are going to – think about the hunting populations they're going to think about the 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 animals that we get out and hunt the ducks the deer the turkey the the squirrels i mean all these animals that we hunt but there's so much more to offer for kentucky's wildlife than than just those animals not that those of course those animals aren't important but i mean we have to as hunters we also have to carry the title of conservationist like that we we 
just as much as we hunt, we have to consider the health of, of the population of wildlife as a whole. And that's really why I wanted to, wanted to have you on today was because of, I think that I really believe that this, uh, this Kentucky wild program is going to be something that I think is going to, is going to benefit, of course, Kentucky wildlife. And then as it, as it finds its success, other States will continue to kind of adapt similar programs. Well, I appreciate you having me on. You better watch out. I can talk about it a lot. So. <laughs> Hopefully. Fair warning. <laughs> Fair warning. <That's> great. <laughs> so, uh, so what are some of the challenges that, that Kentucky's wildlife is currently facing? Like challenges as, I mean, it may be population issues. It may be uh, habitat issues. What, what are some of the challenges that Kentucky's wildlife is currently seeing? Yeah, you know, and, and I think – Whatever I'm going to answer for Kentucky could be very similar to to all of the states in the United States. I mean, just in general, wildlife are facing all sorts of challenges, and and unfortunately, most of those are due to human activities. And you you mentioned it in your question, probably that the biggest challenges are habitat-related. I mean, our, our landscape is changing, and as long as people are taking up more space, there's just going to be less room for wild, not much room left for wildlife. And every time we expand our reach, we are changing the habitat that wildlife depend on. And sometimes that is by fragmenting it into smaller pieces. Sometimes that is by changing the composition of the habitat that's left. Um, and sometimes it's simply by destroying it to put up a parking lot. I mean, it's, it's just with change, um, we're not going to leave it the same as when we found it. And, and unfortunately, that usually is a negative thing for wildlife. But um, habitat issues are, are certainly only part of it. Also, because we're people, we have uh, introduced exotic or invasive species. Sometimes we've done this deliberately because we think we're helping wildlife or we're helping for pest control for crops. Um, sometimes we've done it accidentally, uh, like zebra mussels. You know, sometimes different things have happened and that we didn't intend to. Um, but when exotics or invasives come in, they are competing with our native wildlife for food, for shelter, for space, um, and that that doesn't have a positive impact on our on our native wildlife. Um, with our progress too, I mean, humans are a source of air and water pollution, <laughs> and pollution isn't good for us, but it's, it's definitely not good for wildlife. It you know generally has the impact of degrading the quality of the habitat and it just makes it a lot harder for animals to thrive and you know these human activities are 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 part of our population part of our expansion but when you pile these on top of the other kind of natural threats that animals may face like disease or accidents or collisions um all of those factors combined just in total really really take a toll on wildlife yeah, there's only so much space that we that we have and there's only so much space on this earth and whenever we start to to creep into these these wildlife areas and get into where the wild things are i mean it's like you said it's almost a it's a no going back at that point and it, it'll take so long so many years if by chance you know for that area to recover if it ever does just because yeah. of the the human footprint that is there so but it, it definitely uh it's definitely an issue you know of course habitat I'm always thankful that we live in a country that we have valued wildlife enough to be able to put, you know, tax dollars and be able to put state dollars and be able to put national federal dollars into maintaining wildlife, into maintaining wild areas. And, you know, as that landscape is ch- kind of changing now, the political landscape, whatever it may be, as some of that th- those things are changing now, it's as a hunter and as somebody who enjoys being outdoors, 
it's a, I think at this point we, we have to really prioritize what is going to be, you know, important for us in order to maintain these habitats for these, for these wild animals. Yeah, we really do. And, and it's really getting some national attention right now. I mean, I would encourage your listeners to take a look at something called the Recovering America's Wildlife Act. Right now, um, you know, all of the states are kind of banding together and looking for a sustainable source of federal funding that will fund work for these more vulnerable species. Um, there's there's actually some legislation before the House of Representatives right now. And we're, we're very, very hopeful that, that that will come to pass because it's really difficult to try to make long-term changes when you're not sure where your funding is going to be coming from, from from year to year. It's just, you know, wildlife management doesn't happen at the snap of a finger. And we really need to know that we have a, a more sustainable funding source that we can rely on to really make a difference and, and preserve our wildlife heritage because not just Kentucky that needs it, it's, it's everybody. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely it is. And like you said, it's a it's a national issue and I'm I'm just glad that Kentucky has kind of taken that, that step forward into to hopefully, you know, resolving an issue that that could, you know, really snowball out of control. But Definitely. what uh what species specifically are gonna be, you know, currently affected and you, you mentioned exotic animals and the first thing I thought of was the, the zebra mussels and then uh of course, you know, hogs are an issue. They're not necessarily exotic, but they are especially on the Western Kentucky side, you know, they're, they're doing damage on, you know, agriculture areas and that kind of thing. So those are the first couple of things that I thought of, but what are some species that are currently being affected right now? Golly, that, that would be kind of a long list. It's, it, I'm sure, it's pretty yeah. hard to answer. <laughs> I mean, um, technically, I mean, there's, you know, all of our animal groups are being affected in some way. I mean, they're all definitely feeling the effects of a changing world. I guess if I was going to narrow it down to one, especially for Kentucky, I would think the largest animal group that we're having being infected here are our suite of aquatic species. I mean, things like aquatic insects, crayfish, um, amphibians, frogs, small, you know, the fishes, freshwater mollusks, all of these things rely on clean water to survive and, and then to reproduce. And so when we're dealing with issues like pollution, that that's kind of easy for folks to see, but there's some more subtle changes that are happening. Like when we change the vegetation along streams, you know, clear trees all the way up to a stream bed, or we destroy wetland habitat, or maybe we channelize a stream, um, put up dams or other barriers, barriers, you know, all of those change things. They change the dynamics of the stream. They change the dynamics of the animals using the stream. And sometimes, it's even on a level we can't see with our eyes. You know, maybe that's, that removing trees causes a water temperature change in a stream, um, changes the flow of water when you put up a dam or put rocks to, to impede the flow. You know, then that might cause other things like a change in acidity. And, you know, any of those scenarios, can you can see how a system could very quickly get out of balance. And in a state like Kentucky, which supports, you know, a high number of aquatic species, this can really be significant. And see, if I, if I had to give an example, so for freshwater mollusks, for instance, we have about 100 native species of freshwater mussels, species or subspecies. And we have one of the most diverse mussel populations anywhere on Earth. I don't think people realize that. The southeastern states are one of the most diverse places on Earth. And now while freshwater mussels may not be really showy or exciting to some folks, actually they are. If you if you started to study about them, they're actually incredibly cool, have this fascinating life cycle. But even if you don't dig in, they're extremely, extremely important. Mussels are filter feeders, and they clean our water. 
so if we, you know, if you've been out in the woods with a kid or whatever and you get into a stream and, and you notice that what used to be a whole lot of mussels on the bottom of the water and now you notice that they're gone, when they disappear from streams, we need to take notice because something has changed in that chemistry that those, those animals can't survive. And I think everyone that's listening can, can agree that uh, the value of having clean water is hard to put a price tag on. It's, it's important to all of us. Oh yeah, definitely is. It's, it's of course going to be important for us as people, but like you mentioned, I mean, it's, it's invaluable to wildlife. I mean, it's essential for wildlife to be able to thrive. And, you know, whenever we start messing with that, whether it be pollution or whether it be, you know, like you said, clearing out areas and raising temperature water, all those kind of things, it's going to be, it's definitely going to have a, a negative impact on areas that once may have been a, uh, I guess the most habitable area for, for those, those animals. So what kind of, uh, as far as managing wildlife, I mean, all this stuff is going to, it's going to cost a lot of money. So up to this point, what kind of financial struggles have you noticed that Kentucky has faced in, in terms of being able to manage this kind of thing? Well, I mean, again, and Kentucky is not unique. This is going to be a, this is going to be a problem that, that states all over the country are facing. But I think one of the things we have to remember is that, Wildlife really belong to all of us, and even though wildlife, fisheries and wildlife resources are things that people enjoy differently, we kind of all have an obligation to do our part to make sure that we have a healthy resource if we want our kids and their kids to, to be able to have the same um, experience in the outdoors. And I'm sure most of your listening audience as, as hunters and anglers are going to know that sportsmen and women have supported wildlife conservation, paid for wildlife conservation, Every time they've purchased a hunting or fishing license, every time they have uh, purchased firearms, ammunition, fishing tackle, boat fuel, boat registrations, you know, long list. Um, but the thing about it is, is that there's a lot of wildlife out there. And traditionally, the bulk of that funding has gone to work with game species, as well it should have. I mean, that makes sense, given, given the source of the funding. Um, and while we do have some federal money for animals that aren't taken by hunters and anglers, there is there's just not enough to go around. Um, there's a need for an additional funding source, and, and Kentucky Wild is one way that our agency is looking to help fund these conservation efforts for the animals that aren't traditionally hunted and fished. Yeah, I think as a hunter, that's that's something that's we kind of wear as a badge of honor is, you know, whenever we buy permits, whenever we buy a license, boat registrations, all those types of things that we we wear that as, as a badge, badge of honor because like you know we're we're giving back which we are i mean it's it's definitely an important part and it's you know billions of dollars a year that are going to that millions of dollars a year going to that and uh it's definitely an important aspect of it but i mean there, there's just so much mo- so much more that needs to be done in order to maintain the the healthy habitats that that we enjoy being outdoors i mean there's there's so many other populations that of animals that, that we have to consider in order to maintain the health of, of the, of the habitat and the health of the outdoors. Yes. How is the Kentucky wild program going to address some of these, some of these concerns? I mean, what are they, what, what's the plan right now, you know, looking into the future of how Kentucky wild can, can address the concerns for Kentucky's wildlife? Well, I mean, I think Kentucky wild really was meant to expand our partnership. We already have this awesome partnership with hunters and anglers. Um, you know, we have success stories for game species 
there's no reason we can't expand that and, and have a wonderful track record for, for some other animals that are out there. And Kentucky Wild is a way that people who care about wildlife, and I'm talking about all kinds of wildlife in Kentucky, to specifically contribute to the work that our agency is doing for some of these species that are in a greater conservation need. And, and there may be folks out there that don't realize this, but our agency has a team of folks, um, technicians, biologists, scientists, that work entirely on animals that aren't hunted or fished. Okay, I mean, it, it, we're not all, you know, specialists here for game species, although there's a ton of professionals here that do that. We kind of have this this group that, that specifically works on the other. And that team prioritizes projects um, that they undertake and, and monitoring that they do from something called a state wildlife action plan. And that sounds, you know, wordy and maybe a little boring and maybe a little official, but, but what the, it's a big document and it's an important document. But basically what it is, is it's our roadmap for what we're going to do with conservation efforts as money becomes available. This is a document that is required by the United States uh, Congress through the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service for us to receive any kind of federal funding. And it's important. Um, every state is required to review their plans every 10 years and involve species experts and land management agencies from all over their state. And the end game is you want to identify the animal groups and the habitats that are in the most need and where you can do the most good, if that makes any sense. And and part of doing that is doing um, assessments on animal populations in the state. And, you know, sometimes we may not know. We may know we had a fish here historically, but, you know, do we have it now? You know, and that might, that might be, for instance, a, a research priority that we would have. But in our last revision, of that plan, we've identified just over 300 species that um, our state considers species that are in greatest conservation needs. So that plan helps us to focus our efforts and direct our resources. And, and you know, what our, our goal here to do is to focus on habitat improvements and, and protection. And the reason for that is because with limited monies, when we can invest our resources in improving habitat, we know that that has the potential really to benefit the largest number of species, and and so, and so that's where we start. Um, so that action plan is, is extremely important, and it's important for folks to know that you know as we get money, it's it's not just a matter of kind of willy nilly choosing projects. You know, we have goals and and we have ways to measure the results of, of what we're doing, and everything that we're trying to do is very scientific based and, and measurable because we want to make a difference with the resources that we have. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that's. You know, a ten-year plan—that's a pretty significant plan. I'm sure it has to be very detailed in order to maintain, you know, that kind of that kind of goal for that amount of time. Yeah, and it's it's one again. The importance of that is that it it has buy-in from other entities in the state. I mean, it's not Kentucky Fish and Wildlife's plan; it is Kentucky's plan. And the state fish and game agency is the one who are entrusted with the federal dollars that are coming in for wildlife conservation work. And so, because of that, you know. We are most responsible when we can partner with other land managers. We partner with universities, uh, non-governmental organizations. Um, when we can partner together and kind of pool our resources, we can make our resources go further. And so this plan is a way that we can direct our efforts and have it not be wasteful. We want to, we want to be ready to go as, as money comes in for projects. Definitely. Yeah, and it's, that sounds like a, a pretty interesting interesting way of, of doing things. I mean, that's, that's pretty cool. That's something I didn't really realize that there was a whole – a whole, I guess the whole state's plan for conservation. You know, whenever we think about conservation, of course, we're going to think about fish and wildlife agencies. We're not necessarily going to think about all these other additional partnerships that 
are actually in place in order to to make these plans and to have these things available. So when money does come available, we're ready to go. That's pretty interesting. Yeah, we want to be ready. So what's that uh, that process of actually assessing populations look like? So from a wildlife biologist standpoint, you know how do you how do we actually how do you guys actually go out and you know figure out how many animals are in a certain area and that kind of thing? How does what's that look like for you? Oh man, no no short answer there. I know I, I kind of threw that one on you. An yeah, so one example might be, um, a good example might be the barn owl. I'm saying B-A-R-N, you know, a barn owl. Okay. Um, that's a species that when our state wildlife action plans kind of first came about around you know, 2005, around in there, we didn't know how many barn owls we had. We just didn't. Um, and that's a species that, um, you know, you'd think would be, well, it's easy to count. You know, they, they nest in barns. Well, you know, not always. Right. But... What we did in that scenario is we, we definitely surveyed the uh, public land, you know, the wildlife management areas and other areas that we had access to to try to find nests. But a large part of that was asking our citizens to help us. You know, we did a campaign, you know, have you seen me? We put information on our website. We made magnets. We sent out press releases. We did something on the television show, Kentucky Field Television. We did something in the magazine, you know, to try to let people know this is what a barn owl is. We're trying to find out more about them. And so when results started coming in, our biologists would go out and, and confirm, you know, hey, is that a barn owl? Are they nesting? What does this look like? And then there was a real concerted effort to try to see what might be limiting the numbers of barn owls that we have. And there was some research done with nest boxes, building some nest boxes for these animals, not because they couldn't find a place to nest, but perhaps the nest site that they were choosing might not be great. You know, like if you were in a barn, the you know, may not have been in the best shape or some of them tried to nest in silos. You know, if we could provide them better nesting space in a nest box, maybe that would bolster the numbers. So then, you know, you go back year after year and be able to compare what you're doing as you know of more sites. You know, it may be, maybe they're not trouble. Maybe we just don't know where the sites are. So this was a way our biologists kind of had to adapt. You know, you try different ways to get your numbers. Now we know that there are way more barn owls out there than we thought we had. Um, and so we don't have to go out and try to survey for them every year. We survey every third year. It's called a triennial survey. And 2019 was a triennial survey year for the barn owls. And so it's that kind of thing with feedback and new data and, and keeping up on top of these things that we can make better management decisions for future plans. You know, that document that I mentioned, yeah, it's big and cumbersome, but it's not a thing that you're going to put on your shelf and get dusty. At least that's not what it's intended to do. It's intended to be a living document, one that is called, it's called adaptive management. You kind of change things as you need to and update it so it's current. And so then that way, if we know that maybe barn owls are in a little bit better shape than we thought, we could focus our efforts elsewhere. So barn owls are still one we're keeping tabs on. Um, they're not... Uh, they're not a species that's, that is, is as common as we think they could be, given the amount of available habitat. So we're going to keep our eyes on that. But, you know, that, that track I just explained to you might be really different if you're talking about a freshwater mollusk or if you're talking about a spotted skunk or another animal. But the point there is is that we admit there's things we don't know. We admit there are gaps in, in our knowledge base for these animals. And that's why it's so important to have partners. And it is so important to have people that are willing to work and really, really important to have money to do the work with. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that's, it would be nearly impossible, if not impossible to actually go around and, you know, hand count every single thing that's, that's available out there. And, yeah. you know, having that, <laughs> yeah. that partnership, I, 
I can definitely see the value in that being able to have these, this data coming from different resources and be able to, to kind of collaborate with, with all these partners and put, you know, some kind of number quantifiable measure together so that you're able to actually come up with a plan for, for the future. Oh, yeah. I mean, that's, that sounds like the, the best, most, most efficient way of doing it. Yeah, there are. I mean, there's, we need to have goals as a state to see what kind of work we need to be done and then find the right entities to do that. You know, sometimes that might be Kentucky Fish and Wildlife. Sometimes that might be a non, you know, a, a non-governmental organization. You know, it might be somebody like the Nature Conservancy. Uh, we have a great partnership with the uh, Kentucky State Nature Preserves. Um, or, you know, and it might be through university research with graduate students. All of those things are valuable, valuable partners that we have in this plan. And, um, you know, a lot of information can come from a lot of sources. It certainly does not all come from, from one place. Yeah, absolutely. Definitely. So have, once you get all that data together and once you get your, your scientific measurements together, you know, what, what kind of current projects do you, do you start or how do you, I guess a better way of saying it, how do you use that data to work on your current projects? Um, well, again, I mean, it kind of, once you start a project, like with the barn owl, we want to see that through. You know, okay. we want to make sure that we can show how they're, pop- just to use that example again, we're going to keep an eye on that population. And what we should see is that we should see it continuing to increase or to level off and be stable. Um, and again, we wouldn't want to turn loose of a project if it was only part of the way finished. Um, but, you know, it may be that if we get in a situation where a population is stable, we can, you know, just make the decision, well, you know, we have, it's time to branch out now. You know, we want to, we want to try to look at something else. Right. Yeah. What kind of current projects are, is the Kentucky Wild Program actually working on? I mean, I was looking on the website trying to do a little bit of research preparing for this and it looked like you guys had quite a bit going on. What all is actually going on right now? Oh, goodness. We've got (laughs) a lot of different (laughs) ones to mention. I mean... Right now, we are doing a lot of work with uh, pollinators. Um, right now, if, if anybody listening has heard about the monarch butterfly, I'll use that as an example. That's something probably all of us can remember from our childhood, that beautiful orange and black butterfly that is just, you know, something you promise you're going to see during the summer and see lots of them in the fall. Um, unfortunately, the monarch butterfly has been going through some unprecedented declines. In fact, Within just 20 years, we know their population has decreased by about 90%. And that's due to a variety of factors, kind of some we touched on earlier, habitat destruction, and also widespread use and misuse of pesticides. You know, just, you can imagine a lot lot of Mm -hmm. things going on there. But rather than wring our hands and, you know, oh, the sky is falling, the sky is falling, we're in a unique uh, uh, position now is to actually step in and help. And the monarch is a probably the perfect poster child example for an animal that we can move the needle on because they're found a lot of different places and a lot of different habitats. You could have a 500-acre farm or you could live in an apartment complex with a little deck on the back. You can do something to help a monarch. Everybody recognizes them. I don't know anybody that hates them. I mean, who would hate a monarch? Right. Yeah. <laughs> My daughter them, loves right? butterflies. So. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, everybody likes them. So one of the things that we're trying to encourage folks to do now is to uh, you know get involved with developing habitat that's beneficial to a monarch. So a monarch butterfly is unique in that their caterpillars can only feed and survive on milkweed. Um, And we have several different species of milkweed in Kentucky, um, but with 
and it was mainly found in agricultural areas. And um, but the problem is, is that some milkweed can be toxic to certain uh, when livestock eats it. So it's it's not one that you want to have a whole lot of. But what's happened is. In the agricultural landscape, it used to be there were farms that would lay fallow or you'd rotate your crops. Now there's a whole lot of clean farming where there isn't scrubby edges and, you know, some of these fallow fields left. And with that disappearing, the milkweed's kind of disappearing. And so that's a problem if that's your host plant for for a monarch butterfly. So trying to find places where there is enough milkweed, one of our goals is to try to get a lot of milkweed back on the landscape in places where it's not going to be a problem with with farming practices. Um, you know, farming's not going to go away. We wouldn't ask farmers to have that go away, but we're trying to find a balance of, of places where the, the monarch can go to feed on, on milkweed. Um, now, once a monarch goes through its life cycle and comes out of its chrysalis as an adult butterfly, it doesn't need the milkweed anymore. But what it does need are good sources of nectar from nectaring plants. And native plants are best. You know, so there, there are flowering species of milkweed that, that um, butterflies can feed on, but there's a lot of other native plants that produce showy flowers and good nectar, and those are really, really important. And so um, what we have done with and made a priority for some of our Kentucky Wild projects are to plant high-quality native plants that are good for pollinators, and we've also produced seed packets that we can distribute to anyone that's interested in trying to make their place a good spot for monarchs. And not just monarchs, I mean bees, other pollinators, all of these, very, very important. Um, but that's one big project that we're looking at. And and there's others, but again, you're going to get me talking and <laughs> I'll go on and too many. But, uh, you know, that's, that's a very, very important project that we're looking at. Some other projects that are always going to be really high priority here in Frankfort, Kentucky, we have a facility called the Center for Mollusk Conservation. And I mentioned earlier when we were talking that the southeastern states in Kentucky, we are one of the most diverse places on the entire planet to have freshwater mollusks. Unfortunately, you know, our streams are not in as great a shape as they used to be, and we've had several species that are declining, some that are gone from the state, some that are gone regionally. Well, the Center for Mollusk Conservation, um, the team of, of scientists working there, has been doing amazing things to try to rear these young freshwater mollusks um, in captivity and raise them to a size that they can be put back into the wild. And that is that is no small task. For me to say it in sentences, it sounds, oh, oh that's cool. No, no. The life cycle of a freshwater mollusk is fascinating and complicated. Um, they require a fish host as part of their life cycle. And in many cases, we don't know what that fish host is. In many cases, the landscape has changed so much that the fish host might not even be in the stream anymore that the mollusks are in. So they might still be there and feeding, but they're not reproducing. So, I mean, again, very, very complicated. But the team there at the Center for Mollusk Conservation is figuring out ways to rear these small mussels they're, they're they're having they're taking animals from other states uh where remnant populations of these mollusks are found and they're raising them and being able to re- to uh release them by the thousands back into historic streams you know where they used to be and the processes that have been developed sometimes they've had mollusks where they don't even know what the fish host is but these this team of folks has worked with different media and been able to grow uh these mussels in the lab without the fish host, which is really groundbreaking. And, and it is that kind of groundbreaking stuff that it's going to take to be able to save some of these species. And, you know, I've gone down to the center before with groups of people and, you know, uh, 
one of the malacologists down there, Monty McGregor, he's, you know, again, just fascinating at what he does. He'll say, do you see all these that I have in my hand? You know, how many muscles I have in my hand? This is more than there are anywhere else in the world right now. You know, and so you can appreciate the complexity and the rarity of what they're doing. And to be able to say that your team has been responsible for um, putting some of these species back in the wild and essentially saving them from extinction, that's that's pretty satisfying. And, you know, it's not unusual for him to host biologists and, and, and interested parties from all over the world. He's hosted people from Australia and from Japan and other places that want to come over and learn these processes. So, as, you know, as a planet, we can do something to, to move the needle for, for this group. And Kentucky Wild Dollars this year have purchased lab equipment for him that he desperately needed. They needed to have a water chiller to keep the water at the appropriate temperature and something called a, a centrifuge. And it, it allows the staff there to process the algae that these rare mussels feed on um, and produce with a high-quality diet for them that's going to maximize their, their growth and their survival. So, again, you know, these the projects, again, I could, again, could go on and on, but those right. are two <laughs> that I just wanted to mention at this point that are, are really critical, and Kentucky Wild membership dollars have gone directly to those projects. Yeah, it's pretty incredible that, you know, we're able to make such an impact, you know, like, like you mentioned with the mollusks, be able to make such an impact that's going to impact quite literally the entire world and definitely the the country right here in our own backyards here in Kentucky and it's pretty it's pretty incredible you know listening to you to you say that I can I can hear the the passion in your voice and it's it's really incredible to to be able to sit here and, and listen to you you know talk about what the Kentucky Wild program is doing it's it's awesome it's refreshing as an outdoorsman as somebody who likes to get out into the outdoors and it's really refreshing for me to you know know that there are other people out there who who care about and who value the same things that that me as a as a hunter and as a conservationist as somebody who appreciates wildlife yeah, our team is top-notch. I mean, the biologists that we have here are, are top-notch. They're doing work that is truly making a difference. And, and we hope that Kentucky Wild is going to be one way to highlight what they're doing and, more importantly, get people that care about the same things, give them a way to partner with that work. Because, again, it's up to all of us. Wildlife, wildlife belongs to all of us. Absolutely. Absolutely. So before I let you go, uh, there's always one question that I always like, my, like to ask my guests. Now, I typically have hunting specific guest on here so I'm, I'm interested in hearing what what you come up with for this one but at the conclusion of every show i always ask my guests what does hunting mean to you or you can you can answer it from the perspective of kentucky wild what does hunting mean to kentucky wild oh man i guess i'm gonna have to answer that two ways <laughs> <laughs> yeah. because uh well i was born in louisville kentucky and my family did not hunt i mean i occasionally went went fishing with my grandpa, but it really wasn't until I went to school and studied wildlife management that I really began to understand the value of hunting. And when I got married, um, it was a completely different situation because my husband had grown up in a hunting family. And in fact, his family farm was one of the sites where some of the first turkeys were released during some of the early restoration projects. So hunting was really a, a big part of his growing up. And I loved to see how excited he was about it and how he wanted to at least give her an opportunity for our kids, you know, to, to, to hunt. And so we live on a farm in Scott County, and he hunts turkey and deer, and I listen to songbirds. <laughs> and, <laughs> but as a result, our freezer's full of venison. You know, we, we very rarely um, 
you know, buy any other kind of red meat. It's, it's venison and turkey doesn't usually last too long. We eat that pretty quickly. But um, I'm just, I, I'm, I'm thankful for that. And I'm thankful that our kids have had the chance to, you know, have that experience and understand that hunting heritage. I'm, I am thankful for that. But as, as far as Kentucky Wild goes, I think we are learning that this program is resonating the most with our hunters and anglers. In fact, we, we recently did some statistics on our membership and found out that 75% of our Kentucky Wild members are also licensed buyers. And so what that says to me is that sportsmen and women, especially in Kentucky, clearly value all of Kentucky's wildlife and they appreciate the importance of protecting each piece we have. And, and, and obviously by joining Kentucky Wild or supporting our agency's efforts you know, to manage the full array of wildlife. Yeah, that's great. That's actually uh, pretty incredible. So you mentioned that. I, I, I didn't expect that percentage to be so high. That's that's awesome yeah. that that there's so many of those fellow hunters that are really valuing, you know, wildlife as a whole. That's that's pretty incredible. That's that's awesome. Thank you so much for being on the Rice Kill podcast with me today. I really do appreciate it. I know we had a little bit of uh, technical issues there at the beginning, but, you know, that, <laughs> that stuff happens, but we work through it. And uh, thank you so much. So where can listeners, where, where can they learn more about the Kentucky Wild Program? Oh, absolutely. Well, they can start by visiting our Kentucky Wild website, and that is at sw.ky.gov slash kywild. Um, anyone that is interested in joining can join from that site, our membership levels. And I do, do I have time to mention a quick thing? Absolutely. Yeah, um, go for it. Our membership levels, we have six of them. They start at, at $25, go up from there. Each one has some cool gear associated with it. Um, you get regular e-newsletters from us telling you what we're doing, how we're spending the money, all that's very important. But one really, really cool aspect of Kentucky Wild is that at each membership level, um, we will randomly go in and just select a few folks. Again, at random, we'd love to take everybody, but <laughs> we give a couple of folks a chance to go into the field with us and do some of the work, you know, and that might be working at a songbird banding station, that might be mist netting for bats, that might be going out and helping to restore freshwater mollusks, um, that might be building habitat for barn owls. You know, it, it could be any number of things, but it, it's not a staged thing. It's the real deal. You're coming out with us because we know the people that are joining are passionate about the wildlife. And want, we want people to feel connected and have the chance to do that uh, once in a while. And and it's a big deal because, it, again, it's it's coming out in the field, meeting the professionals, doing the work. Sometimes we have to delay because of rain, <laughs> you know, or water levels, you know. So it's the real work. But we have gotten such good feedback about that. So, um, you know, joining is something we, we, we'd love to have as many members as I can. You know, we, we encourage people, if maybe you're not interested in hunting and angling, but you know somebody that really cares about wildlife, this is a way for them to partner with what we're doing. And so you can go to that website, fw.ky.gov slash Kentucky Wild. You can join there. Or if you're already familiar with our, our regular Fish and Wildlife website, fw.ky.gov, you're going to renew your license. Um, you can add on the Kentucky Wild membership. And you can follow us on social media. We're on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. If you're on Facebook, you can watch for Kentucky Wild Wednesdays, where we highlight a project, our activity that we're doing each week. And of course, um, if you just want to call and, and have questions about the program, you can call our 1-800-858-1549, ask for Laura. I would be happy to tell you more about joining or about how our specific programs uh, are working on through Kentucky Wild. That sounds great. I'll be, I'll be sure to put all those links and all that information in the show notes. That way people can find the 
information and the links right there in the show notes. They can go straight straight there from the details of the show. So thank you again so much. I think it's really great that you mentioned that in those membership levels, people can get involved. I think it's important, you know, for people to actually get out there, get their hands dirty, you know, experience it on such a unique level. And it's really cool that you're actually able to do that through one of your, one of your, uh, some of your membership options. That's, that's pretty yeah. awesome. Yeah. One of my favorite parts. <laughs> Absolutely. Well, thank you so much Laura, for being on the rice kill eat podcast tonight. I really do appreciate you taking some time tonight to, to talk with me about it. Okay. Thank you. I appreciate it. Well, again, well, thanks for considering us. We appreciate it. Yeah. Thank you very much. I appreciate it. Thank you guys for listening to the Rice Kill Eat podcast today. If you got any value out of today's episode, go ahead and click that subscribe button. That way you don't miss out on any of the future episodes of the Rice Kill Eat podcast. Also, just to help us out just a little bit more, go ahead and leave us a rating and review on iTunes or wherever you're listening to this show. Ratings and reviews really help us be able to get the message of the Rice Kill Eat podcast out to new listeners. That way we can share your thoughts with potential listeners in the future. So if you haven't already, go ahead and follow us on Instagram and Facebook. So on Instagram, it's at RKE Afield. So that's RKE as in Rise Kill Eat Afield. So that's at RKE Afield. So go ahead and follow us on Instagram. Go ahead and like us on Facebook. That way you can stay up to date on all things Rise Kill Eat podcast and the RKE Afield brand. So again, thank you guys for listening today. And I hope that you enjoyed today's episode. And be sure to check us out next week for a new episode of the Rise Kill Eat podcast. Oh,